we're still in Matthew chapter 5 in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been taking his disciples through a very logical progression, and he's challenging the social norms of the day. And he's taking all of them to a higher level. And he's started out in the Beatitudes with some very counterintuitive statements. He's saying things like, you know, blessed are the poor, blessed are those that mourn, blessed are the meek. And these are things that people do not strive for outwardly. But Jesus is saying that these are the things that characterize a citizen of the kingdom. Uh, We want to be, you know, in our flesh, we want to be rich and we want to be happy and we want to assert ourselves. But these are not natural things that Jesus is talking about, that this is what citizens of the kingdom look like. And then he starts to outline our purpose, that we're to be salt and light to the world, that we are to be those that bring flavor wherever we go. And we're supposed to preserve, to have a preserving influence, and we're supposed to make people thirsty for the Lord the way salt does. And then not only that, we're supposed to be light to the world. We're supposed to be those that illuminate a path to the Lord. We're supposed to expose the darkness and not just, you know, not just with bullhorns and pickets, but just in the way that we live. He said, let, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So we also need to be a light to the world. And then Jesus moves on to the law. The people were very familiar with the law because the religious people of their day wouldn't let them forget it. Um, they were constantly trying to get the people to measure up, but Jesus reinforces this idea, but he also makes the point that God's standard is so high that we need a savior. We need somebody to mediate that for us, to fill in the gap. And we cannot earn righteousness in and of ourselves. Uh, In fact, he says that your observance of the law, you would have to be so righteous that your righteousness would have to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. These are the guys that did it almost perfectly. They, all they did was live to keep the law. And he said, you would have to do it better than them to get into heaven on your own merit. But it was pretty evident that we fall hopelessly short of God's perfection that he requires, which is why we need a savior. And speaking of self-righteousness, he moves on to our heart issues, who we are on the inside, because that's the only thing that's going to matter. That's what God is going to judge. And he starts off with anger. He says, if you have hate in your heart, if you have had anger towards your brother, malice, then you are guilty of murder. And that would have blown everybody away because we've all been angry. We've all had hate inside of our hearts at one point or another. And guilty of what, we're ha- what happens when we do that is we are guilty of destroying somebody either in our mind or emotionally, mentally. And he says, that is just as bad. That attitude is just as bad as the act itself because that's where it starts. And he says, not only is anger damaging, but so is lust. He moves on to lust and says, you know, lust is going to eat you from the inside out. It's going to, you know, deceive you into thinking that that desire that you're trying to fill is going to some way, um, you know, make you happy. But all it's going to do is burn you up with a desire that can't be fulfilled. And that act of adultery was punishable by death. That's what they knew in that culture, that if you committed adultery, that the penalty was death. And Jesus wanted to demonstrate how serious that was by saying you would be better off going into heaven without your eyes and without your hands, without your best faculties, if that would keep you from sin rather than to go into hell with, you know, a perfect body. He's trying to say, you know, although you know, bodily mutilation isn't going to change a heart issue. He's trying to make the point that this is so serious, you need to address this heart issue or it's going to destroy your relationships. It's going to destroy you spiritually. Uh, It's going to manifest itself in sin and death. 
uh, spiritual death, um, emotional callousness. That's what's going to happen if we don't address this issue of lust in our lives. And then he moves on to divorce. Uh, men were getting angry with their wives and they were lusting after other women and they were opting for divorce, easy divorce instead of covenant. And once again, they had lowered God's standards to a, a level that they could meet. And that was what happening in their day. And that's what happens in our day. People lower God's standards to suit their lifestyle. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians don't read their Bibles, and so they don't really know what God has to say on the subject, and so they start forming their own opinions, which are influenced by culture. And so they become wrong opinions. And so we see lifestyles in the church that aren't that different from the world. And that results in, that's evidenced by broken homes, broken relationships. And now Jesus moves on from the topic of divorce to vows and oaths. And it's kind of Fitting that today, on a day where we talk about men and women who have fulfilled their oath to the ultimate degree by giving their life um, so that we can enjoy freedom, that we're talking about vows and oaths. And naturally, when we talk about vows, when you hear that word, it goes to marriage. But when we start looking at these words that he's using in a deeper degree, again, he's been talking about what's in our hearts, we find out that he is uh, talking about things like integrity and being trustworthy. Uh, We would call it being men and women of our word, right? Keeping our promises. That's why I called this one, I promise. Um, There was a wealthy tycoon who was laying in a hospital bed and he was dying. And he was talking with his pastor and his pastor was praying over him and talking to him about God's supernatural healing power. And this rich man said, pastor, if the Lord will heal me, I will give a million dollars to the church. And so the pastor prays with him and miraculously he does recover. Two weeks later, he is out of the hospital and it's been a couple months, but the pastor runs into this rich man on the sidewalk and they start talking. And in the course of their conversation, the pastor says, you know, when you were lying on your deathbed in the hospital, you promised uh, that you would give a million dollars to the church, and we still haven't seen that check yet. And the tycoon says, did I say that? Well, that just proves how sick I was. And uh, we have a way of forgetting our promises pretty quickly, and we need to be men and women of our word. Uh, Here is our text today. We are in Matthew 5. We're going to go through verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil." or literally the evil one. Well, lack of credibility has long been a major mark of the world system. And since Satan is called the God of this world, and he is a liar and a thief, then it shouldn't surprise us that the people who tend to lead this system tend to be liars. People that we don't trust all that often. And some of those people are about to kick off what I predict will be one of the most heated, one of the most vile political seasons that we've ever seen. You know, the contributions are coming in and the commercials are being produced. They're going to try to see if they can make out the other candidate a bigger liar than they are. 
Who's going to be the bigger, who didn't keep their word, and that's what they're going to try to convince people of as the political season is coming. That's what we have to look forward to for the next six months, unfortunately. There was a study that was published in the Journal of Psychology that found that um, the group that they were looking at, in a 10-minute conversation, on average, the people lied three times. In a 10-minute conversation, that was the average. People lied at least three times. And in Great Britain, there was a study that revealed that men, typically, the average male was lying six times a day. And women were only lying three times a day, which is kind of surprising to me since women tend to talk twice as much as the men do. But the men were lying more. The men tended to lie about their drinking habits. This is in the UK. The women tended to lie more about the way they were feeling. Now, ladies... You have to be honest with the way you feel. We cannot read your minds. Don't lie about the way you feel. Three lies a day work out to about 90 a month or 1,100 lies a year. That's a lot of hot air that's coming out of the public. Parents are lied to the most with at least 83% of people admitting that they've lied to their parents. 73% have lied to a friend. 70% admit to have lied to a sibling, and 69% admit to have lying to a spouse. But it's not just adults. It starts very early on in life. Uh, I heard this week a statistic that 90% of four-year-olds, by the time a child is four years old, 90% of them know how to manipulate or how to shade the truth for their own benefit. Uh, Alicia and I were just meeting with a couple Thursday night, and they have a five-year-old and a girl that's almost four. She's about to be four. And then they have a newborn. And they were talking about their son. One time he was crying because he wasn't getting something that he wanted. And his little sister, three years old, came up to him and she said, you just have to cry. She knew how to manipulate the system to her benefit. So it starts early. It's hardwired into us. The Roman philosopher Cicero said, truth is the highest thing a man can experience. Because it's so rare. And Daniel Webster, who was a former Secretary of State, said there is nothing more powerful and often nothing as strange as the truth. And when we talk about vows and oaths, it means that we are those who are true to our word. Now, Jesus is quoting here from the Old Testament that we are not to swear falsely. And some translations say that you shall perform your vows to the Lord. And that word that is used for vow is to fence something in. So literally, when you are making a vow, you are fencing yourself in. You are committed. And back in the day, when you would swear to something, that meant that you were committed. Now, swearing has a much different connotation going against keeping your word has a much different meaning. Well, why do people even promise or make an oath in the first place? You could just say that you were going to do something and then do it, but we're not people of our word, are we? And so people want to lend legitimacy or credibility to something that's say, so they say, I swear or I promise. But if you really wanted to give credibility, you would swear by something greater than yourself. You would hear people say things like, I swear on my mother's grave. Right? Or as some people carelessly say, they would say, I swear to God. But they wouldn't do that if they truly knew what they were doing, calling God into that conversation as a witness against them for what they're saying. And in, the people in Jesus' day understood the seriousness of making an oath, especially before God. But what they were really good at, as we've been finding out, is, is doing a workaround, finding a loophole in the system. And so they began to swear by heaven or they began to swear by the temple. 
And if you were really serious, you would swear by the gold in the temple. Jesus, in Matthew 23, when he's going through his woes to the Pharisees, he says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Because what was happening is people were making oaths so indiscriminately and so insincerely that they had become worthless. Uh, They knew that if they made a vow before God, they were going to have to keep that oath. And so they were making vows by other things which had become rather optional in their opinion. And so they weren't trustworthy. It wasn't really oath-making. It was more like lie-making is what it had become. And God told his people, you are only to make a vow in my name and you're not to do it falsely. In Leviticus 19.12, God says, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And the context of this verse, God is talking about how you are supposed to treat your neighbors, how you're supposed to live in community, and you're supposed to deal fairly and honestly with the people around you. And God had given instructions for the proper ways to make oaths, and he knew that we were prone to deceit, to lying. And so he made accommodations. This is how you're supposed to make an oath. This should settle matters, and you're supposed to do it honestly. And God, of course, is the ultimate oath giver, and it's written by the the writer of Hebrews. I think it describes it perfectly. This is in chapter 6, verse 13. For when God had made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchanging character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. You and I can cling tightly to the hope that is set before us because he is one that keeps his promises. He is the ultimate oath giver, but he's also the ultimate oath keeper. We have the God's Promises books in the back, and they're designed so that when you are going through a time of discouragement, you can turn to the scriptures, you can read God's promises and be encouraged by what he has said, and it's going to come to pass. It's true in our lives. I thought that it might help this morning when we're talking about oaths and vows to look at the oaths that Jesus and that God had made to the people. Uh, We call them covenants, right? These are the covenants that God made with the people, so I thought it might Uh, It might help to look at those. Covenants really are the backbone of the scriptures. You know, without God's promises, then this is really just a history book. But God's covenants, his promises are what make his word true. So we're going to look at the covenants and how we see Jesus in them. Anytime we read through the Bible, we need to be looking for Jesus. He is proclaimed in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, he's explained. Right? He's in the Old Testament proclaimed, the New Testament explained. So whenever we read through the scriptures, we need to be looking for Jesus. The very first covenant that God made was with Adam and Eve. Uh, when he created them, he said, all of this, the whole garden, all the world is yours. It's yours for enjoyment. The reason I have created you is for relationship with myself and relationship with each other and to enjoy everything that I've created. There's only one rule the conditional rule that you not eat of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You will surely die in the day that you eat of it. This was a conditional promise. As long as they followed God's plan, there would be blessings. There would be enjoyment. But if they 
chose to reject God's plan, if they rejected the covenant, then there would be curses. And we all know the story. They rejected God's command and they let sin into the world. Because Adam and Eve disobeyed God, what God told them to do, a curse came upon them. And we read this in Genesis 3. God says to the woman, this is 3.16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for you are dust and to dust, you shall return. Now, this is the curse that we see and feel daily. Uh, If you've ever tried to plant a garden, you know that this is true. Uh, It's very difficult to grow. Um, But God did not leave us without a promise. He did not leave Adam and Eve without a promise. And here's what he said. This is in verse 15. He's speaking to the devil at this point. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, God curses the serpent, and Adam and Eve have curses come upon them because of their disobedience, but he did not leave them without a promise. The devil may bruise your heel, but there is going to be one of your uh, descendants that is going to bruise or literally crush his head, and that offspring is Jesus. Um, This is often referred to as the first gospel. Adam and Eve are getting some very bad news. But there's also some very good news that he's going to send a savior that is going to make everything right again. He's going to renew creation and bring forgiveness and mercy. That is what we call the Adamic covenant, the covenant with Adam. And the next covenant was called the Noahic covenant. This is the covenant that God made with Noah. And in Genesis, God looked down at mankind and saw that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. That means that all the images, all of his imagination was bent on evil all the time. And it says that it broke his heart so much that he regretted that he had even made mankind. He regretted that he had even made man. And as a result, he judges the world and he sends the flood to cleanse it. But he makes a covenant with one man, the only man at that point that was godly, he and his family, Noah. And we find this covenant with Noah in Genesis 9. Verses 8 through 17, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when the, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between you and me and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. 
and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Um, a little bit repetitive, but God wants to drive home the point that this is the covenant that I'm making with you. And the beautiful part about this covenant is that it's not conditional. This is an unconditional covenant that God is placing on himself. There's nothing that Noah can do. There's nothing that we can do on our own to make this come to pass. God puts it squarely on himself. Why does God do this? Because he already declared in the garden that one of their descendants was going to come along that was going to make everything right. So in keeping with his word, he saves somebody to be able to start again. And so Noah and his family become like the new Adam that is going to start this new world. And the ark that Noah built, this is where we find Jesus in the story. The ark that Noah built was a symbol of salvation. Now, this was their salvation, literally, but a symbol of salvation for future generations. Having faith in God, they climbed into the ark and God saved them. And today we have a greater, infinitely greater than the ark, Jesus, a savior, that when we put our faith in God and we are in him, in Christ, then we have salvation. And that's where we find Jesus in that covenant. Now, we had quite a bit of rain this week, uh, and we got to see the symbol of his promise. We got to see the rainbows. I saw some really cool pictures that people had posted on social media um, of the rainbows. And we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating again, uh, that because the devil is a liar and a thief, he inspired men to steal the symbol of God's promise and to use it for evil. What was Satan's original sin? The very first sin that was created, that was committed was pride, right? Satan's pride. I can be God. I can ascend to the heights. I can be like God. Now, this next month, just this week, there's going to be flags flying all over our country, um, symbolizing Pride Month. I think it's really sad that they chose that symbol in defiance of God. It's not coincidental that they stole God's symbol of hope and used it in defiance of him. Proverbs tells us that pride goes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. And because people are mocking God with their sin, uh, their pride and defiance is going to lead them to an eternal punishment. Um, He provided a visible symbol of hope, and people have turned it into a symbol of sin, unfortunately. The next covenant that God made is uh, one that we're all very familiar with, and this was the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, There's Abram right? Minding his own business in the land of Ur, which is in modern day Iraq. And God speaks to him. uh, And this is in Genesis 12. This is what the Lord said to Abram. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'll make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is God's word to Abram. Abram, whose name meant high father. That's what Abram meant. Now, Abram is 70 years old when God speaks to him, and his name Abram is a constant reminder that he has no children. And his name means high father, but he doesn't have any children at this point. Wouldn't it be great if when we were young, God gave us a vision of his purpose for our life so that we could get our lives in line with that? Now, sometimes that happens, but sometimes the way he works is he gives us a vision later on in our life, a time when we think it's come along too late. I mean, sometimes he tells you that you should start a church when you're 44 years old. 
That seems a little, I wish we would have given that earlier, right? But this is when, and so whether he gives it early or whether he gives it late, he's going to keep his promises. God's covenant with Abram actually takes place in Genesis 15. And once again, God is making an unconditional promise, an unconditional vow with him. It's not dependent on anything that Abram can do, only on what God can do. Now, back then, if you wanted to uh, make an oath with somebody, if you wanted to make a vow and you were serious about it, you would do what they called cutting covenant. Then blood needed to be shed. And so what you would do is you would set up altars. Uh, In this case, God had Abram set up multiple altars. And what you would do before you started the barbecue, you would put half of the animal on one altar and half of it on the other altar, and you would both walk between the altars. And you would basically say, uh, symbolically, if I break this vow, if I break this covenant, then may what happened to these animals happen to me. And blood was shed symbolically. So God has Abram set up these altars with five different uh, animals, and then Abram waits. And he's waiting out there in the desert, in the heat, and, um, you know, when he's out there, these vultures and all of these birds of prey start to circle around. They start to descend on the carcasses because he's just sitting out there waiting on God. And, you know, I mean, he's 70 years old at this point, so he tires out pretty quickly. He's chasing these things off, and when he takes a break, after he's chased them off, he takes a break, and he falls asleep. He's waiting on God and he falls asleep. Now, when he does, God, you know, reinforces his word to Abram in a dream. And when he wakes up, he sees a smoking pot and a torch. That's all he sees. And it's passing between the altars. And God is passing between the altars by himself. Abram had been sleeping and God's saying, this covenant is not dependent on you. It's squarely on me. I'm going to pass between these by myself and let you know that I am going to keep this covenant with you. I chose you. You did not choose me. And you know the story. God changes his name from Abram to Abraham, from high father to father of multitudes. Now, he didn't even have kids at this point yet. But he's saying, I am going to fulfill my promise to you. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And despite the fact that Abraham and Sarah messed up, they made a mistake in the very next chapter, God was faithful to keep his promises and he gave him land and he gave him descendants and it was unconditional. God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. Now, one of the great thing about God's promises is it's always more than we think. It's always bigger than we think it is. And in Ephesians 3, Paul writes that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask or think. And he told Abraham that through you, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. How is that possible? How can all of the nations of the earth be blessed through Abraham? Well, by Jesus. Jesus, the descendant of Abraham, through all of, you know, through Jesus, all of the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And that's where we see our Savior in the Abrahamic covenant. So we see him in the covenant with Abraham. We see him in the covenant with Noah. And then this is also where we see him with Abraham. And I was reading about the area this week that was given to Abraham as the promised land um, compared to what they actually inhabited. And the people of Israel have still yet to live or claim all of the land that God promised to Abraham. Uh, One day they will. One day they will 
completely fill the promised land that God gave them. Um, All of the disputes that have been happening ever since Israel became a nation um, are only small portions of what God has given them. But one day it will be fulfilled um, in a time of holiness, in a time of restoration, um, in a time called the millennium. When we're ruling and reigning with Jesus on the earth, they will fill the place that God has given them in totality. The next covenant that God makes is with the nation of Israel uh, under the leadership of Moses. So it's called the Mosaic Covenant. This is another one that we know very well. And these were the promises that God made with the people when they were at Mount Sinai. Uh, At Mount Sinai where he delivered the law to Moses, the Ten Commandments. And if you remember back, this one was also a conditional promise. Uh, Moses said, I'm putting before you today options, life and death. I'm placing those before you. Uh, Oftentimes we think of covenants as something that just needs to be fulfilled, but there's actually two sides to every covenant. There are blessings when you keep it, and there are curses when you break it. He handed out the law, and you hear a lot of this phrase. You hear, if you do this, then I will do this. But if you do this, then these are the consequences. This is what's going to happen if you break the covenant. And in Deuteronomy 11, um, he says, today I'm giving you a choice between a blessing and a curse. And in chapter 30, he says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you this day that I have set before you life or death. And this is the message that God has been giving to all of mankind ever since then. You can be blessed or you can be cursed. You can do things God's way or you can do things your way. And if you do things God's way, you're going to be blessed. And if you do things the world's way, curses are going to come upon you. Now, why would a gracious God of the New Testament, one who loves and forgives unconditionally, whose salvation is not by merit, why would he create a covenant with the people that was conditional, that was merit-based? People outside the church have a really hard time with this. When they look at the scriptures and they see the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, they say it doesn't match up. This isn't the same God. I like the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament doesn't make sense to me. Seems vengeful. But this is where we actually find Jesus. Paul told us that the purpose of the law was to teach us, to make us aware of our inability to keep us, creating inside of us a desire for a Savior, somebody to fill the gap between us and God. The law was to be an illumination of man's need of God's grace that was going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that was going to be provided for in Jesus. And if there's one person who knew his insufficiency, his lack of merit, it was David. David knew his lack of merit. When you read through the Psalms, it becomes abundantly clear that David knew how sinful he was and how much in need of God's grace and forgiveness he, was, uh, he needed. David knew that he hadn't done anything to deserve the position that God had put him in. God simply chose him. Uh, God made Adam. He chose Noah. He chose Abraham. He chose Moses. And now he chose David. In 2 Samuel 7, God made his covenant with David. And this is a promise specifically to David, but we get to enjoy the benefits of this. Um, And this is where we look for Jesus once again. Uh, The covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him the rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, he's my favorite one by the way, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. 
But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent from my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people of Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now David didn't do anything to deserve God's favor. But his response to that favor is what changed the course of his life. He was blessed because of how he responded. Uh, And it's not just material blessings that he got. It was generational blessings that David received. It was a legacy of godliness that was going to produce the Messiah. How people respond to God's offer of forgiveness and grace is going to determine where they spend eternity. You know, David was called a man after God's own heart, uh, and he didn't just respond once. He was a constant responding over the course of his life. He would respond to the Lord. Yes, David made some huge mistakes, but he would repent, and he would reorient, reorient his heart back towards the Lord. And as long as we're attached to these earthly bodies, we're going to struggle with our sin nature. Uh, We're going to make mistakes. But the question is, how do we respond to his forgiveness and grace? Do we reorient our hearts to the Lord, or do we allow them to become hard and calloused? Uh, And if you haven't had a response to the Lord in some time, then I would encourage you to take a look at your heart. Um, If you're not being led by the Spirit, then perhaps we're not pointed in the right direction. Um, We need to get back to seeking Him. Uh, I heard somebody say this week that we need to know so that we can show. We need to know Him so we can show Him. And we also need to seek so that He can speak. If we want to hear Him speak, then we need to be those who seek Him. And that's one thing that David did constantly. And later on in this portion of scripture, it mentions that David's house and kingdom and throne would be established forever. Uh, The covenant with David is summarized by these words, house, where he was promising a dynasty to David, uh, to his lineage, and that he was going to establish his kingdom, referring to a group of people who are going to be governed by the king and throne, emphasizing the authority of the king's rule, and then forever emphasizing uh, the unconditional nature of the promise. Christ has come, and his kingdom is here partially. It'll be here fully when he returns again, because he is seated on the throne. There's a house, a kingdom, a throne, which is going to be forever, and that is the covenant that he made with David. And that's where we see Jesus Okay, the last covenant that God made is the one that we talk about the most, and that's the new covenant in the New Testament. That's what New Testament means. It means new covenant. The old covenant was based on the law. The new covenant based on what Jesus has done. 
Jesus is the, you know, the covenantal climax. He is the exclamation point on all of God's promises. Uh, we read that in him, all the promises of God are yes and amen. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. But like the old covenant that God gave to Moses, this one is conditional as well. We have before us blessings and we have before us cursings, life and death. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. That's the law. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That is the new covenant. The conditional promise, if we choose to live in him, to let him rule over our lives. Uh, No longer would it be an evident uh, covenant of circumcision, a cutting away of the flesh, but it would be a circumcision of the heart. Uh, Moses saw this day by faith when he said, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. And I was thinking about that this morning. Um, This is not in my notes, but I was thinking about the church and how a lot of Christians do not live the life that Jesus promised, this abundant overcoming life. And they do that because their souls are kind of dried up because they have hardened their hearts. And as a result, they're not able to love God fully, not the way that we're supposed to. And they haven't allowed God to circumcise their hearts. And what that circumcising was, it was a cutting away of the flesh. And it was symbolically cutting away sin out of our lives. And we need to do that. We need to take another look at our lives. We need to repent and allow him to circumcise our hearts, to cut out sin, And then we can love God the way that we're supposed to. And then our souls will be refreshed. And then we will live truly abundantly the way that Jesus said. And we watched that video last week where there will be rivers of living water flowing out of us. That's what Jesus told the woman at the well. And it might sound kind of strange. Why is there rivers of living water that are flowing out from us? If you think about that, um, life is around the river. Everywhere the river goes, there is life. We are to be speaking life. We are to have life flowing out of us, giving life to other people. Um, And so we can only do that when we let him circumcise our hearts, refresh our soul, and live the life that he has called us to. That's the new covenant. Jeremiah looked forward to these days when he wrote, the day will come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. But this is the new covenant that I will make with the people of Israel. On that day, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. John the Baptist proclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just the sin of Israel, but the sins of the world. Because God keeps his promises, we've been brought in. We've been grafted into the family of faith because God keeps his promises. And the ultimate fulfillment of the new covenant uh, is going to be seen in two places eventually. Uh, First, in this earth, on the millennial kingdom, the ultimate fulfillment of this promise is going to be seen in also uh, when the new earth and the new heaven arrive. When everything is made new, that is going to be the ultimate fulfillment of the new covenant where he has defeated sin and death and Satan is thrown into hell eternally and then we only experience his righteousness and his life for all eternity. Hebrews 8.6 says that Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant that he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. A vow or an oath is a chosen partnership which binds two parties together for a single purpose. They are personal and they're relational, but they also require faithfulness and devotion. And I'm going to have the team come back up at this point. 
I thought that was interesting. They're personal and relational, but they also require faithfulness and devotion. Uh, In the 1840s, there was a young man who uh, was an earnest Christian, and he got a job at a pawn shop, and he didn't really enjoy the job at the pawn shop, but he did it to the best of his ability. He did it as unto the Lord, and he wanted to prepare himself for a life of Christian service, and he wrote on a scrap of paper that he put in his pocket, he wrote this, I do promise, God, that I will rise early every morning to have a few minutes, not less than five, in private prayer. And I will endeavor to conduct myself as a humble and meek and zealous follower of Jesus. And by serious witness and warning, I will try to lead others to think of their needs of their immortal souls. I hereby vow to read no less than four chapters in God's word every day. And I will cultivate a spirit of self-denial. And I'll yield myself a prisoner of love to the redeemer of the world. That's a big piece of paper. But he would keep that with him all the time as a reminder of the oath of the vow that he made to the Lord. And that young man was William Booth, who would later lead thousands of people to the Lord. And the Salvation Army that he, that he founded stands as a monument to his faithfulness in preparing himself to live for the Lord every single morning. That was the vow that he made. And I think it's a good practice for us uh, to determine today to make some vows to the Lord. Now, it's important to make sure that we can fulfill those vows, but we start off with something small. Something like getting up and spending at least five minutes in prayer. That was a small thing for William Booth, but he did it. And I think for us, it's important too, to have some vows that we can make and keep that are going to help us live the life that we're called to. We need to be people that are oath keepers. And we had that movement that was the promise keepers for the men. And I'm not sure where that is today, but, you know, the men of our country, the men of the world need to lead their family, need to be those who keep the promise, who keep the oath, uh, to love their wives, to care for their families. But as Christians, people need to know us as those who are trustworthy. Uh, I've heard too many stories of people that had Christian companies work on their homes or do jobs for them, and it didn't turn out the way that they were hoping. I mean, sometimes the people who, you know, uh, you know, become more honest or trustworthy aren't of the house of faith, and it should not be that way. It should be those that keep their word even to their own hurt. Um, I have a client that I was working with, I was talking to him, and he uh, has a roofing company. He said that we give our word when we give a quote to somebody, we are going to fulfill that price regardless. And so they tore off this roof and underneath it, because they didn't, you know, look ahead of time, underneath it, everything was rotten and they had to replace everything. And I said, well, what did that set you back? And he said, it doesn't really matter because we gave our word, we gave a vow, an oath, and what the price we give you is the price that it's going to be. We're not going to charge you more. And you know what? He actually turned out to be a Christian. And so he's keeping his word. He's being an oath keeper. But we all need to be that where people can count on us to do what we say and say what we do. Amen. Well, I want to sing one last time. Um, just be thinking in your heart. Be led by the Spirit. Um, again, respond to what he's, what he's asking you to do. Um, just to make some promises, some vows to God uh, of how we want to grow spiritually and live for him and touch other people and have that life flowing out of us. I give you my worship. You still deserve.